Hey, what's up, my fellow limpers? This is your host, Jordan Ross, and thank you for listening to another episode of the What's Your Limp podcast. Uh, Today, I am talking to one of the actors from one of my all-time favorite TV shows, and that is Charles Baker, who plays Skinny Pete on Breaking Bad. I had never uh, met or spoken with Charles prior to the interview, other than a couple of emails setting the interview up. But I do know several people that have worked with him. Uh, We actually used to have the same agent, so I've heard a lot of really great things about him and uh, had seen some other interviews with him in the past. And he was always so interesting to me because he played this character on Breaking Bad that's, you know, just kind of this like deadbeat, uh, you know, kind of tragic addict character. And uh, he played it with so much authenticity and it, it was hard to kind of disconnect him from that at first because seeing him in that role, it just seemed so effortless and real. So I I always kind of assumed um, wrongfully so that that was more in line with what he was like in real life. But then listening to interviews with him and, you know, learning more about him, he's really a a very cultured and uh, thoughtful and intelligent guy. But having said that, he's had some of the most insane life experiences, uh, not just of people I've had on the podcast, but of anyone I've ever talked to. And hearing how he was able to overcome all of the challenges he went through was really inspiring. And I can't wait for all of you to hear it, because this truly is one of the most incredible stories of anyone I've talked to on this this podcast so far. Uh, And I think all of you will be incredibly moved and uh, taken aback by some of the stuff that he, he went through. So I'm going to stop talking and let you just get right into the episode because it was kind of a longer conversation. So I want to keep the intro a little bit shorter. But uh, yeah, so without further ado, listen to this original intro music by the great Devin Levi at Devin Levi Music. Be sure to go follow him and enjoy this conversation with Charles Baker, a.k.a. Skinny Pete. We know some of the same people uh, and, you know, we were in the same area there for a while, but uh, you weren't born and raised in Dallas, Fort Worth, right? No. no. Okay. So I I read that like you moved, you've lived all around, like you lived in like Mm. DC and Hawaii and London and Israel. Uh, How did you end up in DFW? Uh, Well, my parents were divorced. Um, it's a huge, like, that's one of the, the big, the big layers. My dad was military, um, which in itself is a nomadic culture. Yeah. Um, and my parents were divorced when I was seven and she, I was the youngest of four. I was seven years younger than my sister. And so she was old enough to go where she wanted, but I was my, the courts gave my mom custody of me. And so I went from being the youngest of four, uh, in a family to being an only child with, we found out later, uh, I knew, but nobody else knew. We found out by the, when I was 18, uh, my mother was severely mentally ill um, and she hid it well uh, from everybody um, except me. And I was basically the sole benefactor of that mental illness. So, um, uh, but she was also very nomadic because of her instability uh, her mental instability kind of 
forced us to have to get evicted from one apartment, move to another place, and she'd get a new job. She was very, very well educated. Um, and she was, you know, a teacher and an artist, but um, she was also psychotic. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> what was the yeah. specific uh, mental illness that she, that she was? She diagnosed with something like what? What was the what was going on? It's really kind of weird. She she was a beauty queen uh, when she was younger, um, and then it turns out she had a thyroid condition which later in life kind of uh, put her in overweight. Um, and so she would, as trends had it at the time, go on these starvation diets. Well, it turns out when you have this particular thyroid condition she had, starving yourself caused little psychotic episodes. Wow. But she, like I said, she hid them well. And um, I was... Uh, home alone <laughs> uh the only one who really got to witness it for most of my life like for most of my child i was uh, 11 years old when she just abandoned me in a a shack in a really small town outside of albuquerque new mexico her and her second or third husband had decided to buy this condemned building and turn it into a, a business slash living space in which they would uh, make custom furniture and we would live above the custom furniture store. And we got halfway done. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have running water. When she had uh, one of her episodes, uh, he decided to take off um, the next day. Uh, and I went to school and then she decided to take off. Um, and so she, she actually went to Dallas, Fort Worth, um, and left me in New Mexico. Uh, now my father at the time, he was stationed in Israel and prior to this story, he had taken me to Israel with him, uh, where we lived on the border of Lebanon and Israel in a little town called Maharia. Uh, and, um, he was, uh, he was the chief of military operations for United Nations, uh, peacekeeping force there. Um, and because of that, he was also the target of a lot of, um, militant groups, uh, that were based at the time in Lebanon. Um, and there were so many different acronyms for them. It's hard to keep track. I was 10, but, uh, because, because he was a target, I, I became a target. His whole family that he brought with him uh, became targets. And we, uh, after after our house was bombed the first time, and we were in a had to stay in a bomb shelter for a little while, we evacuated, uh, drove from Israel to Egypt. Um, we hid in Gaza. If you've seen. Uh, the last Indiana Jones movie where the, they have the temple of Gaza, the, the Petra, the hidden city of Petra. Yeah. We actually, we actually camped out there in tents um, while we were in hiding from these militant groups. Um, and so it was, it was an experience, you know, uh, and then we went to Egypt, uh, stayed in Egypt for a little while um, and then went back to Tel Aviv and immediately flew back. The family flew back. He stayed. Um, and later, was uh 
it was right before the in 1981 there was a, a, a truck bombing on the u.s embassy in beirut um and he was the target of that that bombing a lot of marines got killed and it was one of the it was a big issue at the time and that was we we saw that i saw that on cnn um and the only way we we lost communication at the time with him the only way knew we knew he was still alive was because we saw him on the news um in the aftermath um and but so after so uh, they evacuate me from this this war in which i've seen actual like the actual wars and seeing dead bodies and have seen the bombs land. Uh, he sends me back to my Manila mother, who then leaves me uh, in the shack. And while he was in the Middle East, we had no communication. So I survived for a year in uh, the streets of Albuquerque. I managed to get to Albuquerque and survive uh, until I was 12 when he he came back to the States and found my mom and said, Hey, um, I'm supposed to have my normal visitation. Uh, and she had no idea where I was. Um, and so there was this kind of a statewide search in New Mexico for me for a little bit. And I, uh, uh, when I found out about that, I went back to the sh little shack where I was left as if I, you know, that's where I was the whole time. Um, and my dad found me, took me to Pennsylvania and, um, kind of put me in school there. And then he went back to the middle East and left me with, uh, the strangers that he or his family, uh, that I kind of barely knew. Uh, when I was 17, my dad kind of, he decided to step up and he, uh, helped me get into a, uh, school that was for dependents, military and diplomatic dependents who were stationed in countries that didn't have American schools, didn't have English speaking schools. And it was in uh, High Wycombe, England. It was a Department of Defense boarding school, uh, for lack of a better term. And it was just basically an American high school that was on a, on a nuclear air station um, in the countryside of England uh, that just had dorms. And we lived in the dorms and went to high school and uh, spent weekends tripsing around London, going to concerts or, uh, and I, I went to a lot of Broadway kind of musical. Um, saw a lot of theater and that's where I kind of really decided I loved theater which you know we are the product of our environment um yeah. most of my life i had uh changed and adapt my personality dialect as a, as a way of survival and um it's what i became really good at <laughs> yeah and so uh i found a way to use my powers for good instead of evil right. <laughs> uh, well, yeah it, it, i was about to say all of that translates perfectly to the line of work you're in now so yeah um yeah and it's it really is cathartic whenever you you are getting to you know play out these these insecurities or, or struggles that you've you've had in real life in front of the camera in a controlled environment or even right. in an acting class yeah um and uh so i'm really glad that that you found that out because yeah well, i mean if i didn't do this i'd have to pay for therapy so you yeah know. yeah <laughs> now we get paid to do our therapy right right um it's uh yeah it's it's a pretty pretty sweet situation um are either of your parents living now i think my mom still is alive i don't 
I wouldn't know. I, from last I heard she had dementia, but I wouldn't know how to find her. Yeah. Uh, not really interested. Um, right. My dad died a few, several years ago. He and I had started to reconnect uh, because he, he was a fan of The Wire. <laughs> um, and then he started watching Breaking Bad. And that's when he kind of realized, okay, maybe maybe you aren't the failure that I told you you'd always be. When I was 13, right before I decided to take off and be on my own, he had pretty much, he had decided I was going to West Point. He was a Vietnam War vet, um, and he advised several presidents personally. Um, he was an expert on the Middle East, on terrorist tactics in the Middle East. He wrote the book on, on that subject. Um, he, he, was, he was a tough dude. Um, yeah, but he had decided I was going to West Point, and I had a presidential like appointment to West Point. That means I had a free ride to West Point uh, as soon as I graduated. All I had to do was just not flunk, fail out of high school. And I told him I didn't want it. Um, I didn't want to be in the military. I, I despised um, the military. You know, I, he was commander of of a training base in, in Fort Knox, and I was spending my summers with him as a kid uh, during his you know visitation uh he would usually just kind of leave me with with a private and this private would have to like drive me around and take me to the dentist and it was uh, just me in a jeep with a soldier you know as a babysitter um so like i didn't really like get to know him very well and i definitely didn't really like the military life i had gone through basic training you know three times by the time i was nine um and so i was like i don't want to do that and uh he, he's like well what are you gonna do i was like i want i want to be a performer an entertainer i sang i danced um i was a gymnast uh i play music like i i, I tried acting but only in during musicals because that's i love doing musicals and um it's like i want to do something like that and he's like well, what are you gonna do like for real that's great for a hobby you're never gonna support a family doing that you're never gonna be able to buy a house or own a car like what are you gonna do and i was like i don't know and uh, that literally escalated into him almost breaking my back he, like i said he wasn't he wasn't a very uh he was a very tough dude I didn't have support in my family about any of that. That was, you know, oh, that's a pipe dream. Um, you know, if I sang a song for one of my siblings, I remember them just laughing at me and like, you know, uh, like I was just the stupidest uh, for even trying, you know, um, you're never going to be good enough. You're not good looking enough. You're not tall enough. You're not, you're not anything enough. You're just not enough. And um, I worked in restaurants. I cooked, I washed dishes, I managed, I went back to waiting tables and I, I did uh, a little bit of everything in every kind of restaurant industry because one, because that's what actors did, right? You know, you work in the restaurant business, but two, I used that as my excuse to not actually put myself out there that was like well i can't go audition i'm working right now dang can't go to that audition and it was, it like was always my excuse I, you know, like absolutely absolutely my first child was born just a few months before i turned 17 years old i had custody of him for his first three years and then his mother came out of nowhere and said i went back and disappeared until he was seven years old 
and left him with me until he was nine and did the same thing. And I was, I was a, I was a waiter at Denny's, you know, I bust tables at IHOP. How was I going to fight that when she shows up with a lawyer and says, nope, this is my, I have custody. I was literally married at 16 because I didn't have a parent. I couldn't go to school. The solution was that I marry the 18-year-old stripper that I impregnated, and she becomes my legal guardian. And that's how I kind of went to high school. Um, now, like I said, I had a transient life. I went to seven different high schools and still didn't graduate because the last boarding school that my dad finally got me into in England, I sabotaged. Um, but by dropping acid while I was celebrating getting the award for having the highest grade point average in a school. And so um, I was not only thrown out of the school, I got deported. And uh, they sent me back to Fort Worth, Texas, because that's where, that's where I was scumming around when um, my dad got me into that school. And so I ended up in a a house halfway house for homeless people uh at the age of 17 um with a bunch of souvenirs <laughs> from gift shops in in the UK and the clothes I had in a duffel bag and I decided uh to do better <laughs> um I was working I, I got myself out of that halfway house um not exactly the best way, but what I did what I had to do to, you know, get enough money to get out. And then I got a job at a pizza hut in this, you know, greasy cook's outfit. And um one day I, I saw this kid walk into the store and it, it could have been my son. It was like I hid. And then I like it dawned on me, why the hell am I hiding if it's my kid? It's because I don't want him to see me like this. Like, I don't want to be seen as someone who's given up on life. And so I thought maybe if I went back to school, if I put myself in college and I can go to a junior, I can go to a, a junior college without a high school diploma and take classes. And if I get enough credit at a junior college, I can then go to a four-year school. I knew that just because I, I knew somebody who had done it. And so, um, I decided to put myself through school. And if I did see my kid, he'd see me at least trying to better myself. And then if I don't see him until, you know, I finish school, at least like I'll get a degree like as a teacher and I'll have like a respectable job and then like be, be somebody that, you know, he can at least not be ashamed of. And um, in college, junior college, I had some great teachers. And this is in Tarrant County. What, what is now Tarrant County Community College. It was Tarrant County Junior College at the time. Um, but like the teachers that I had had real world experience. They taught me more about how to be a professional than about how to act. They, they, you know, everyone talks about how my, I had a natural talent for being a character actor. Like, no, I don't. That's a trauma response, but I'll go with it. Sure. But like, I had the lowest self-esteem. Like I, I, I was constantly putting myself down and self-deprecating and sabotaging myself. And um, our director of the theater department gave me this opportunity to audition for a scholarship to a big university. 
And it was like a free ride to a theater art school. And they came, the, their who, scout, whatever, came to the theater. And I had to perform two audition pieces, a comedy and a drama. One, pre preferably one of them be a period piece. I knew I blew those things away, those pieces away in front of just this one person as the audience. Like I, she wasn't supposed to respond. She was laughing out loud. Like I had her. Um, and then came the interview. She, she left and talked to my professor and uh, my professor came to me and said, what did you do? Like, what? And she's like, you had the scholarship from your audition. And then you did the interview and she said, there's no way this guy's going to finish college without killing himself. There's no way. Like he doesn't even like himself enough to even want to, to like accomplish. He doesn't even think he can be a performer. Why would we um, invest in somebody who doesn't even like believe in himself? And she said, we all know you don't like yourself, but this is a business. And in this business, as an actor, you are the product. You are not only the product, you are also the salesman. And if you want to make it in this business, you have to convince people that you're worthy of investing it. Like that you're not going to like implode on set or break apart and fall apart. You, if you don't have the confidence, just fake it till you make it. And that kind of hit me. So I started like just trying to better myself incrementally like stop wearing crappy shoes invest in some socks <laughs> you know um comb your hair for a change get a you know start going to pro cuts every few weeks at least you know and slowly but surely some of that becomes habit and you start like hey look at me i'm taking care of myself and, hey look at me i'm doing stuff and then and then as you start working at first in theater and then I started work. Then later, that started going into on camera. I started seeing how, like, hey, if I don't take care of myself, I'm gonna feel really bad when I'm on stage, and I need to be in better shape next time. If not because of any self love, at least because I like paying rent. That's nice. I was still working while I was in college. I was still working in the restaurant business, and I had a manager come to me one day um, and start yelling at me. I, I was kind of fed up. And I, like I said, I had started building some self, like some self-esteem as, as some of it is was pretend as it was. I, I went, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be someone's bitch. Right. Like I, I quit my job in that instant. And I went home and I told myself, either I'm going to make it in the entertainment business somehow or I will starve to death from this point. on. I will never do anything that I don't want to do for, some, for just a few scraps of few dollars. I took the you know, community college theater training for um, all, the, all the backstage kind of stuff. You learn how to run the light board, how to run the soundboard. And I went to all the, all the theaters, Circle Theater, um, uh, Fort Worth Theater, and said, hey, um, if you guys need somebody at the last minute to fill in for any job, I don't care what it is, call me. And they were, first of all, they were like, 
you know, there's, we have the stagehands union. We could just call you know them and they'll provide us with somebody. I'm like, whatever. Um, I really wasn't aware of, of there being a stagehands union. Um, but I just, I made business cards and said, Hey, if you need somebody to fill in and finally one theater called and said, can you really fill in with like four hours notice for like running a soundboard? And I was like, yes, I can. And like, well, please do. And then uh, circle theater calls and said, Hey, we need, we need somebody to just be one character for one scene for a matinee because the guy we have can't make it just for one matinee performance. And it's, he doesn't have any lines. It's just, we need him to play a Butler and like, okay, I can do that. And that kind of kept cascading into um, a theater calling up and saying, hey, we need, we, we need a guy who's available Monday through Friday during the week, like um, from like 9 a.m. to you know, two in the afternoon for a children's play at Dallas Children's Theater. We heard you were capable if you can just be available, because most people have jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you could just be available, you got the part. The Dallas Children's Theater was doing a show in conjunction for the first time. It was kind of a, with the Hip Pocket Theater in Fort Worth. And the director of the Hip Pocket saw me in this Dallas Children's Theater production. It was Shakespeare-based show. And said, hey, I'd like you to play a lead in one of my shows. Uh, my upcoming season. And I'm like, sure. Actually, I'd never been to the Hip Pocket. If you haven't been, it's a really cool theater in Fort Worth. Um, yeah. It's in West Fort Worth. Uh, it's outdoors. It's actually a different location now, but a lot of the same vibe, like some kind of like hillbilly fairyland. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So he gave me the material for the show that he wanted me to do, which was going to be like the second or third show of the season. And he said, come watch our rehearsals for our first show of the season. So you can see what the theater is like. And so I came out to a the first rehearsal performance, first rehearsal for their first show of the season, just to watch. And uh, there were two people who just didn't show up for the first rehearsal that he had cast. And it's it was an ensemble kind of cast. It wasn't, um, they weren't like major roles, but uh, so he, he looks at me and the stage manager and says, hey, um, I need someone to fill in. Do you guys want to be in the show too? And we're like, okay. And so he put us together as a couple. Um, and that's actually how I met my wife. <laughs> wow. Um, that's awesome. So we did theater there for six years. Um, we got married on that same spot uh, on that stage. And um, 22 years later now, we're still still going at it but that's amazing you talking about you know doing all of these odd jobs here and there and eventually having these theaters calling you up did that help kind of change the way you viewed yourself because growing up clearly there was a lot of abandonment and there was a lot of uh self-doubt and low low self-image uh, uh, and and all of these insecurities but now all of a sudden after you started kind of working on yourself and then pursuing these jobs and just kind of putting yourself out there, it was coming back to you. And, and now people were valuing you and asking right. for you. How did that affect the way you viewed yourself like moving forward? It helped. And it was, it, it, it inspired, it inspired a confidence in what I can do based on like my training 
Yeah. Um, Michael Caine once said, I'm, I'm a trained professional actor. Whether or not I have any talent is besides the point. My skill is being a professional. And that's stuff that I can control, showing up on time, being courteous, even if I'm frustrated, being a professional on set, staying quiet, not being a jerk to people, treating everybody that, you know as if they are important and understanding because I've done every job that everybody is important. As actors, we sometimes forget that if it weren't for the sound people and the light people and the writers and all of these other people there, we would just be naked, standing in the dark, babbling nonsense to ourselves. In the midst of all of this trying to better myself, I heard from somewhere in the back of the room on the TV or on the radio, I don't even know where I heard it. It just, I heard these words that stuck to me and it was only a fool trips on what's behind him. Wow. And it hit me like, like a snow shovel in the face, you know, all I have to do is just do what I can do and do the best I can do. And if, if they like it, they'll hire me. If they don't, they won't hire me. And if they don't hire me, that doesn't involve them slitting my throat or kicking me in the teeth. It just involves me going home with my tail between my legs, waking up the next day and doing something trying something different. Are there triggers for you that you still struggle with, like that kind of bring up the the trauma or PTSD from your experiences as a child? Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of coming back from <laughs> what what I experienced. Yeah. Um, and see, I, I should say, I um, most of the time when I start talking about my life story, I get a lot of, hey, you should write a book. Um, and so after being told that by like some pretty like famous actors that I, I admire um, doing late night shoots with them, just having like these personal, like deep conversations, like, oh, my God, you should write a book. I finally did um, with the help of a, an award winning author who writes autobiographies or co- ghost writes autobiographies. Um, we did it as a co-writing thing because I didn't like I don't feel comfortable with the ghost writer idea. Right. Um, and so we, we, we wrote a book um, four years ago now, um, and then we rewrote the book, and then we re- rewrote it again. Um, and it's probably not going to get published. But um, getting to where I was when I, where a, a, an award-winning author would say, hey, I, I want to help write your life story, it helped me like forget all of that stuff. And then so writing the book brought it all back. And not only that, it made me realize a lot of stuff that I never realized was was traumatic. Now I have a wife and two two younger children who are like, "Why is Dad like so messed up right now?" It's because well, he had to talk about his you know, what it was like when he was twelve. And so I've gotten kind of this point where it's, um, I'm kind of done. Like I'm kind of done with like I don't need to relive it. I've I'm not going to trip over what's in my past. I'm, as far as am I triggered? I, yeah, especially I'm. I'm still kind of someone. I'm still kind of sensitive to it. And someone described it as like, well, um, healing is like you know, with a, a, like a cut. It's like a physical wound, and like it may have just scabbed over, and then you suddenly just ripped that scab off, and so you're going to bleed for a little bit while until you can heal again. And so I've been rehealing. Um, as of late. And um, 
here we are in the midst at, at hopefully at the light of the end of the tunnel of this pandemic. And yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that was a, 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 we experienced in real time. We saw everybody we know and love experience trauma. Some people for the first time in their life experiencing a real trauma. And this was a collective trauma, but at the same time, it was kind of a hidden collective trauma because we all did it separately and we didn't in isolation in isolation. It really was, it was a, a trauma for, for the entire world. And we, we, um, you know, my son, I, I have a, he just turned one yeah. and he hasn't known any other world than what we're currently in. And, and right. he was born in the middle of it. And we were, my wife had to wear a mask throughout her entire labor and, and birth. And uh, we, we, luckily I was able to be with her because I, I heard of some where the father wasn't allowed to be in the room. Um, but we had him, he just turned one and we went down to uh, uh, Galveston recently because our kids have been locked up in the house for a year. And we went down to Galveston to let them play on the beach and get fresh air. And we sat outdoor yeah. on a patio at a restaurant. And I realized I was like, Audie, my son is over a year now. And this is the first time he's ever been to a restaurant. It, it kind of shined a, a new light on it because I have actually you know, I've been lucky enough to have projects I've worked on and, you know, everyone's in the, their bubble and tested and all of that kind of stuff. So being, getting to do that, it kind of, I was able to have some sort of normalcy from time to time. Um, but my wife and kids didn't really have that. So it's been an interesting year. And like you said, I really hope we're at the, the end of that or close to at least, but yeah. as far as speaking of kids, you know, being a father and having two little ones now, how much has that your childhood influenced the way you parent now? Like, is there anything that you worry where you're like, oh, I, I don't want, you know, qualities in yourself you see where you're like, um, I need to nip that in the bud. I don't want to to do that to my kids. Like right. my mom, I mentioned for mental illness, like um, she never was treated for it. She would deny she ever had it. Or that I, I, I believe she thought this. She literally sat me down and told me I was the reason she was fat. I was the reason my dad was so angry after coming out of four tours of Vietnam with four Purple Hearts. She said, you would have been an abortion if I could have afforded it. I tried, but the only person I could go to was my sister, my aunt, and she wouldn't give me the money. And so I had to have you. We were all a happy family, and then you came. <laughs> um, so I like I don't know what loving parents, what good parents are. I was a latchkey kid. I was locked in the house watching TV before I went to school, after I went to school. And you know, I thought, oh well, when I'm a dad, I'll be more like leave it to Beaver's dad. You know, it's a constant like no clue what to do kind of thing. And so my wife, who had the exact opposite childhood, uh, I kind of like defer to her and like, so pause. <laughs> now, in this instance, this is where my mom would like hit me really hard with the back of her hand and the cubic zirconia ring, which has caused all these scars around my lip. Now, I'm not supposed to do that, right? So 
what would you do? <laughs> right. And she's like, okay, well, you just tell them to please stop and yeah. <laughs> show them what they're supposed to. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, communication, that helps. Um, having having a partner who isn't, you know, insane. But also, while I worked at the Hip Pocket Theater, one of the programs they had that helps the actors um, make money was an outreach program where we we worked at adolescent psychiatric hospitals and elementary schools um usually in like kind of like low-income neighborhood kind of situations and we would teach these kids improv games and theater games and teach them how to use their imagination a lot of my like disciplinary kind of skills come from watching the way the the hospitals took care of these kids and from comments a lot of times from the the caretakers who would come to us and say look if it weren't for you guys these kids would never have a chance to express themselves creatively like a lot of these kids weren't in there because they had mental problems they weren't in there because they had problems it was they were in there because their parents didn't want to to bother with it until it was too late and now they're uncontrollable so here fix it for me mm -hmm. and so like being proactive being active in as active as you can in their in their lives and um just doing the best you can yeah like um, and listening is and, key for kids it's so easy to get into a power struggle with with a little kid because right. they you know, don't want to do something. And then you're like, well, I'm the adult, I'm the parent and you go back and forth and it's never going to get you anywhere. It's going to end right. with them having their feelings hurt and crying and then you feeling bad. And yeah, it all comes down to listening and communicating and getting on their level. If my, I, I have three and my, my oldest, she's about to be six, my middle's about to be three and my youngest just turned one. And the two girls that are, are two and five, if they get in an argument or one of them pushes the other one down, it's like we've, we've learned and it's, you know, like everyone there's growing pains and no, no parents perfect. And, you know, there's the times that we get mad or raise our voice um, is much less productive than when we sit them down, show both of them love and understanding and try yeah. to see where they're coming from and to just talk to them about what they're feeling. We all take things from, from our parents that like you see something where you're like, I did not like the way that made me feel. I am not gonna do that. And then mm -hmm. with, with me, it's like, right. I want my kids to know I am proud of them and that I love them no matter what. So I maybe tell them too much. Right. I'm constantly telling them. Um, but it's yeah. like, I, I think that, that uh, I'd rather go way too far in that direction than the other direction I, i'm always curious with other other actors with kids have they shown any any interest in what you do or wanting to to do something artistic or how would you feel if they wanted to follow in your footsteps so uh it's kind of interesting my daughter she has this i used to do ballet when a ballet company called the Hip Pocket Theater and asked their director if he wanted to perform as a guest artist for their ballet company. Uh, he said, I'm, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Here's the guy I recommend. And he recommended me for this. Now, I never performed ballet, <laughs> in, even in a recital. I 
just I knew some of the moves and I could I was a good I was a good mime. I could fake it. But they hired me to to play the Grinch who stole Christmas and a, a ballet version of the Grinch who stole Christmas. And the Grinch isn't very graceful. So it's like, hey, it works. But then they kept like they bring me back to do other stuff. And so um, ballet kind of became my thing. And then suddenly other ballet companies are calling me to be character ballet dancers, <laughs> you know, like just a side character. But he needs to be drunken, you know, the drunken priest or um things like that. And that be kind of was my bread and butter for a little while. The one in which I did the Grinch was a children's dance company. And so when my daughter was old enough to start taking ballet, Hey, come on and start taking ballet. And she started studying um, and seemed to enjoy it. Um, and then came time for the Christmas concert and they were trying to decide whether, which they, you know, it's a children's, company they they have like three or four different shows and they just kind of rotate them so they don't do the same show every year and they're like are we going to do the Grinch this year and they came to me and said hey um we'd like you to play the Grinch and we'd love your daughter who at the time was the smallest dancer in the company and so that was usually the one who played the little Sally Boo character we got to have a pod to do with that that particular character and so like your daughter could play Sally Boo and I was like yes so I went to my daughter and I said to Kiri this year for the Christmas concert, they want me to play the Grinch and you to play Sally Boo. And so we get to do a dance together. And she went, no. I went, what? Like we, we, get to, we get to be in a ballet together on stage. No, you have to watch me. I worked hard for this. Like you aren't going to steal the show on like, you're going to sit in the audience and watch. And I went, that's, that's valid. Like, okay. And so I went to the ballet director and said, sorry, I'm not playing the Grinch this year. And then she's kind of like, she she seems like she wants to do the things that I, I do, but not with me. She wants me to see her do it. And so she got, like I said, I moved out here. I had a little party. One of my friends happens to be married to an agent. The agent saw her and went, hey, can you read for me? And I'm an actor. I, I taught her to read by playing every character in every book I ever read to her. And so she didn't know how not to read in character. Like when she read stuff, she like she performs it. And she booked her first commercial, uh, a Toyota commercial, and then booked her like second commercial. And then she started getting TV and film auditions. And she, uh, she was on You're the Worst for six episodes. Um, she played the daughter of a guest star. And then she was also in a Comedy Central pilot as a, as a series regular. I figured like once she was on a set, like that's how I usually could tell. I could take anybody who said they wanted to be an actor, take them to the set for a day. And then they're like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. You know, that's all you need. Um, but I took her to the set and she was like, yeah. Like, damn. Um, and she loved craft services. Like, she loved being able to just go over and just like, I could eat whatever I want at any time. Like, yeah. But she didn't like having to audition and having to memorize. Like, I have, how many lines do I have to memorize? I was like, that's, that's what it is. 
she goes to a highly gifted school and they have a pretty high standard. And for her to stay in that school with her friends that she was already friends with, she had to maintain her grades. And it ended up being she had to work twice as hard when she had a job. She had to work twice as hard on her schoolwork without any of the support. She didn't get to be around her friends. She didn't, there were no other children in any of the things she's ever booked. She was always the kid. And they were all she's like, she wanted to be a Disney, like in a Disney show with a group of Disney kids jumping around and singing and doing, you know, that kind of thing. She, she refused to do stuff at first that had any cuss words in it, which I found out later was just a smoke screen. Um, <laughs> she didn't want to do horror, anything scary. Um, and she was getting offers at this point, just straight offers to do main characters in some pretty big horror movies. And she was like, nope, I don't want it. And like, why do you, why are you even doing this? Like, you don't like anything about it. And then she, some of her friends were on a Lego robotics team and she went and started doing that. And it started taking up her time. And like, if you get a part, you're going to have to step away from the, your robotics team. and you know, you may have to move to Canada for your next, for this next job that you're about to audition for. If you get it, you, you and your mom are moving to Canada for three months a year. And she went, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do this. I want to do something with my friends. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was like, I'm okay with that. Like, if you want to be an actor later, after you have your rocket science degree, like, when when you're a space surgeon and you decide you want to be an actor, go for it. You can do that. Like nothing can stop you. Yeah. I would give anything to have had another education besides just how to be a, an actor. My wife, she has she has a law degree. She has te technically a PhD in law. Sometimes it's I feel like maybe I'm the bad influence because I'm really successful at what I'm doing without any kind of education at all. And maybe I should like go get, you know, just so I can say, you know, I have I have a degree in, in literature or uh, something. I didn't want her to have to deal with the, the hard part of this business. I let her have try it out. She could say she did it. We have. We have video. She gets some residuals every now and then. If she wants to go back to it, she she has a base from which to start. Mm -hmm. um, but she doesn't have to like lose her childhood over it. I think it's cool that that you took that approach because I'm kind of in the same boat. I would rather my kids not want to do that be just because I know the hardships that come with this industry. But if they ever do, I also know what it's like to be told by a loved one that you shouldn't do that or right. it, you know that you can't do that right. um so i never want to tell them that either so it, right. you know whatever it is they do i hope that they you know get so much joy and success out of it and i'm going to be there for them supporting them but if there's something yeah. that they like more than acting i will be thrilled right. uh but so far none of them have shown that that bug yet so so yeah. we'll see but uh before we go i have a, uh, two more things one since most of this podcast is talking about what we're insecure about and the things we've overcome, I want to always end it with asking the guest, what's something you love about yourself? <laughs> That's a weird one. Yeah, it's really hard. That's a deeply personal kind of thing. I like, I honestly, not, I've, I've, I've been listening to, you know, I, Jeremy, uh, 
I've I've been a kind of secret admirer of hers uh, for a really long time. I think I met her, if not just seen her in passing in Funimation when we were both doing uh, Voices at Funimation. And I, I've just, uh, we were both in Temple Grandin, but we didn't have any, we didn't work together at all in that. Um, but like, I've just always been fascinated by her. Anybody who's successful in this business is, has my admiration as it is, but she just, um, anybody who talked about her, it was always like just glowing reviews. And anytime, yeah. like she just has just this infectious personality. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, I forget where I'm going with this. Oh, what do I like about myself? I'm trying to like uh, change the subject, change <laughs> yeah, the subject. Right. I pride myself in my ability to do this but again, I only had to because of the circumstances that I was in. But I, I guess um, persistence, I think, is is my ability to, to persist despite um, what my brain sometimes, most of the time, even tells me. It's like the thing I love most about myself is that voice. It's the smallest, weakest voice inner voice of all the voices inner voice inner voices that i have the one that when all the other ones are saying you can't you can't you shouldn't you won't why not try it anyway that voice i love that one says just like i hope people are watching this because i hope they know that um i tried to kill myself three times before i was even 17. wow and then I was 33 when I finally started really becoming successful in TV. That's almost another 17 years. That's like another lifetime away from the last time I tried to kill myself before I finally like, now I'm sitting, like I live in a dream world. Like if you were to see my house and my neighborhood, you'd be like, ooh. Um, but for me, where I came from, I, I have a pool. I have a big backyard. My kids can play and my dogs can play in. Um, I have a respectable career. Um, no matter what I believe about myself, I can still open up my resume and go, okay, other people think I can do stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, but had I succeeded any of those times of trying to end my life, I never would have seen where I am now. And so, like, it is never too late to change the tide like it's not what the voices say what that inner voice tells you it's how you react to it and like if anything everything i have everything i built is is an act of defiance against all of the things and all of the people who told me i couldn't I can't own a house i can't have a car i can't have a happy family i can't yada 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 well here i am and like you, you don't know how much better it can get the last time i tried to kill myself i didn't stop trying to kill myself because i like suddenly felt better about myself i stopped because i failed again and i was humiliated i can't even get this right so i just deserve to live in misery and so i let myself believe that i deserve to live in misery for way too long before i finally went yo only a fool trips on what's behind him how i go forward is all up to me and i can either let that drag me down or i can use it 
and become a better person and try every day to just improve one little thing, just one thing. It's all you have to do. Yeah. Everything you said, like I, I was already an admirer of yours, uh, just based off of your work. I, you know, it first saw you in Breaking Bad and I followed your career since and seen you pop up here and there. And I always get excited whenever I see you. Um, and then I, you know, talking to different people that different friends we have in common and Richard Olson is one. All the, uh, yeah, he's so good. There's been so many times that your name would pop up and he just had so many awesome things to say about you. And then other people whose uh, paths I would cross. And uh, I heard all of this, this great stuff about you and then talking to you now and reading about you, it's, you know, everything you've overcome, it's, it's apparent that you've put in a ridiculous amount of work. The, The stuff you experienced as a kid is stuff that most people that go through that aren't able to to pull themselves out of it because yeah. it's like everything was stacked against you yeah. and you are here now and I'm I'm glad you're here I'm you know now you have this this beautiful family <laughs> right. and this yeah yeah it's all right um you've got this beautiful family and this great career and and uh you know I'm proud of you I, I just, this you. is the first time we've talked in person yeah. but I am I think that oh, it's it's awesome what you've done Thank you. um, that's what I try and hold on to. I, I, I have to step back and, and remember where I came from and then look at where I am and just like, okay, this is, this is good. Like no matter how bad, how like I've clinical depression, how anxious I get, how like whatever, I just have to breathe, smell my flowers and go like this is i you can be proud of this this is not something to sneeze at i mean it's it's not like it's not the hollywood ideal but it's like fine i mean like it's friggin' awesome beautiful day in sunny california (laughs) right exactly one day at a time yeah yeah um sometimes one one minute at a time one second at a time if, yeah. if that's what it takes and sometimes that's what it took it was just like this too shall pass that's one of my my lifelong sayings is this Same. this will this will be over with uh, we talked before that you just did a pilot for it was uh i guess the first episode it's uh csi vegas okay coming back and that was the original version of csi um and they aren't redoing it they're just re coming back to it yeah i guess and i'm uh i'm i play the usual suspects you know the same same kind of character that i'm always mistaken for um it's a fun little role uh i had fun with it it was the first job I had since october 2019 wow um, so it was it was nice to finally feel wanted again <laughs> yeah. um, uh, we shot in Las Vegas, so I got had to get on an airplane for the first time, you know, and all of this. It's a weird and feeling. It really was. Um, it's going to be cool. It's coming out pretty soon, uh, I think. Um, and CBS on Wednesdays, I believe. Okay. Um, and it's uh, I, I, I just got the one episode for now, unless a lot of people happen to give a lot of good feedback on all the social medias about how awesome I was. <laughs> Um, otherwise, um, it's that one episode, uh, so well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, are there any other projects you, or things that you're working on that you want to plug? Yeah, not right now. Everything I've, last thing I did before that was Perry Mason on HBO. I do have um, some songs on Spotify. I feel like they should come with this disclaimer. Uh, they were actually 
there's a book called Peach that my friend who wrote my autobiography, Wayne Barton, wrote. And it's about a singer-songwriter. Well, it involves, it's not necessarily about, but it involves a singer-songwriter. And in the book are several of the singer-songwriter's lyrics. Um, and so Wayne thought it'd be fun to put out a soundtrack with the book. And so I, he wrote the music and he wrote the songs and he and I together wrote the music. Some of it was all his, some of it was all me, some of it was a mix. Um, and, but they were the ideas he's, he's writing music for different musicians and in their styles. So it's a very eclectic and raw kind of sound to all the songs, but it's, uh, um, it's called Peach and it's on Spotify and a lot of, um, the different iTunes, Amazon Music, and such. Um, but that was the idea: was if you buy the book, you got the soundtrack for an extra dollar or whatever, and you got to listen to the songs that this character was writing for for this story. Well, thank you, man, so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. I'm I I, I can pontificate, so I apologize for no. I love it. Edit is needed. So that was my conversation with Charles Baker. Um, I am still in awe at what all he was able to overcome. It's it's just insane. He said he wrote a book. I really hope that it gets out there because I think people would love to hear his story. And ultimately, I think it would make an incredible film or miniseries or something. It's It's just that's a story that I think needs to be told and that a lot of people would be drawn to. And if there are any, you know, studio executives out there listening Charles has already proven that he is capable of playing a wide range of characters um, and that he has a lot of life experience to draw from. He's a, he's a great actor. He's an awesome person. So if you're casting a pilot or, or looking for a series regular for something, give the guy a chance because he has proven himself time and time again. And I think I can speak for for all of us when I say that I'd like to see him in a role that he can really sink his teeth into and flesh out over a long period of time instead of just popping up here and there. Also, be sure to go give Charles a follow. Check out the work that he mentioned um, there at the end of the interview and just support an awesome guy. Um, he, he's been through a lot and it just makes me really happy to see him experiencing success uh, because it is it is well-deserved. He went through enough uh, adversity, so I really hope that it's mostly smooth sailing for him from, from here on out. Also, Charles is just the first cast member of Breaking Bad that I will be interviewing on this show. Right now, I'm actually recording this outro probably a couple weeks after I did the the actual interview with Charles. But as soon as I'm done with this outro, I'm going to be interviewing another cast member of Breaking Bad. And uh, that episode should be out by the time you're listening to this this current episode. Um, the episode with the other Breaking Bad cast members should be out within a few weeks after. So keep an eye out for that or an ear out for that because uh, I'm really, really, really excited about this one as well. But I'm not going to tell you who it is because now is the time for me to tell you about next week's guest. Um, so next week's guest is another old friend of mine. We kind of ran around in the same crowd uh, back whenever I was a teenager living out in L.A., part-time, you know, pursuing acting as like a 15, 16-year-old. And uh, she has gone on to be really, really successful. Her name is Shelby Young. You may recognize her from Social Network or the first season of American Horror Story. Um, and she's been in a bunch of other films and TV shows. But her real claims to fame are her work in the voiceover world, much like my second guest on the show, Sheremy Lee. 
uh, Shelby has built an incredibly impressive uh, voice acting resume. Uh, she's worked on a lot of the uh, Marvel shows doing some voiceover work. She's just really, really good at it. And in fact, you may have seen her TikToks in which she does uh, impressions of, of Disney characters and a bunch of other really cool, uh, you know, voiceover videos. She also does a perfect impression of Siri. So she has a lot of videos doing that. Um, and she's actually gained 2 million followers just since the, the pandemic happened from those voiceover videos on TikTok. So go look her up, Shelby Young on TikTok, uh, so you can get a feel for the kind of stuff that she does before you listen to my interview with her next week. And just as a little teaser for that episode, I tell one of my infamous poop stories in that episode. That's right. If you know me, you know that I have several pooping my pants stories and, uh, yeah, I'm not ashamed because this show is all about being completely transparent and honest and vulnerable. So uh, what's more honest and transparent and vulnerable than telling a story about a time that I pooped my pants? One of several times, uh, to be clear, but I, I only tell one of them in my conversation with Shelby, but uh, there will be more in the future. So keep listening. And I think that you will be thoroughly entertained as well as thoroughly grossed out by the time you're done listening to my conversation with the great Shelby Young. So be sure to tune in for that. Uh, and thank you again for listening to this episode, my conversation with Charles Baker. Be sure to love yourself, love your limp. And uh, I hope all of you have a great week. Until then, sit back, relax, and listen to this great outro music by Devin Levi at Devin Levi Music. And again, be sure to go follow him on all of his social media accounts. I'll talk to y'all next time.